Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, Cultural Engagement Manager at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic today is the fate of the apostles. My guest today, coming to us live from sunshiny Southern California, is my good friend, Dr. Sean McDowell. Sean's Associate Professor of Christian Apologetics at Biola University. Welcome, Sean. Hey, thanks for having me, Mikel, and for introducing me as your good friend. We do have a history going all the way back to Biola, so... That's right, Sean and I, we went to our uh, uh, undergrad together at Biola University on the same floor in the old uh, dorm, the old Horton Hall. That's right. Fun stuff. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, welcome. Well, today we want to talk about the fate of the apostles, and the way that we want to approach this topic is uh, the idea that for many of us who make a case for the historicity of the resurrection, we often will uh, use an argument based on the disciples' belief that they saw the risen Jesus. So we'll say things like, the disciples wouldn't die for a lie, uh, that liars make poor martyrs. And Sean, you wrote a book on the fate of the apostles, and I wanted to just get the story real quick on how you decided to look into this argument a little deeper. Yeah, I'm glad you started with this question. So in 2010, I began a PhD program in worldview and apologetic studies. And when you do a PhD, as you know, all of a sudden on your radar, are topics that you could explore for a dissertation. Mm-hmm. I wanted one that interested me. I wanted one in which I can make a genuine contribution to scholarship and something I could publish. Well, I began by exploring the topic of theistic evolution, then I realized it's so expansive, science, history, philosophy, theology, that it felt a little overwhelming. And I was on a trip in Berkeley, California with about 25 high school students. <clears throat> and we bring in atheists and agnostics to speak to our students. Mm-hmm. And I had a friend of mine who's a mythicist who argues that Jesus didn't even exist Hmm. presenting to these students. And one of my students raised his hand. He said, well, if Jesus didn't even exist, why did the apostles die as a martyr? And he looks back at him and he says, can you give me any evidence that any of them died as a martyr? And like in unanimity, Mikkel, they Hmm. all turned. My students looked at me as if I'm supposed to have the answer. (laughs) And I sat there thinking, well, you know, my dad wrote it more than a carpenter. Um, mm-hmm. Lee Strobel talks about in case for Christ. I'm thinking, I actually don't know the answer to that. That's a pretty important topic, given how formative this argument has been in resurrection studies and beyond. So funny enough, a friend of mine, a cold case detective who's an apologist, Jay Warner Wallace, mm-hmm. was with us on that trip. And I said, hey, man, what do you think about this for a dissertation topic? He goes, oh, I think it's awesome. And by the way, I just bought two full books on the traditions of the apostles. You can have them and just run with it. Hmm. Well, it turns out that those two boxes of books were just the tip of the iceberg. And for the first few months, I was convinced, surely somebody's explored a topic (laughs) as important as this. Mm -hmm. And while some people like Richard Bauckham have explored the historicity of Peter, other people explored Thomas and John, Nobody brought all them together and assessed them with historical rigor, simply asking, what's the evidence they died as martyrs, and is this a good piece of evidence for the resurrection? Hmm. So, your research question is basically, how do we know that certain apostles really died as martyrs? Is that right? Yeah, essentially, I'm assessing the claims and the traditions about the martyrdom of the apostles. 
that's at the heart of it. And if you write an apologetics book, you can begin with the assumption, I want to make this case as strong as possible. Mm-hmm. And that's how I started. But I quickly realized that out of historical integrity and just for the sake of knowing the truth, I've got to begin by asking, how good is this argument? Does it have any merit to it? Should we use it? And what's the actual evidence? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what was your approach to, to assessing the evidence that you found? Yeah, that's a great question. I... I approached what Marcus Bachmule, who's a New Testament scholar, has something called the living memory. And he argues that through the end of the second century, there was still a close-knit oral tradition that is not too far removed from the apostles themselves and has higher historical merit than later sources would. So if you look in the church fathers, even people like Papias, or you look in people like Polycarp or Ignatius, they talk about passing on this tradition that had been handed to them, kind mm-hmm. of the same way the Apostle Paul does. You get to the third century, kind of Tertullian and beyond, and you don't see the same kind of focus on living memory. So I started by saying, all right, what is the evidence for each of the apostles dying as martyrs within the living memory? And then some of them like Peter and Paul and both James, there is significant evidence within the living memory. Others comes after the living memory. So then I had to say, is this still historically reliable? How do I assess these? So that was a general approach. And then I set up a a, kind of a historical rubric, so to speak, with a nine-point scale Hmm. from the least historically probable to the highest historical probability. Because history deals not with certainty, or with proof, but with probability. That's Mm -hmm. how history works. So I set up this nine point, you know, in the middle, of course, is just possible as, you know, as possible as not, and then different gradations going up and down. And then based on the quantity of evidence, based on the quality of evidence, I made individual assessments about what I thought was the likelihood of the martyrdom of each of the apostles. So this is kind of like not beyond a reasonable doubt, like in a criminal case. This is more like a preponderance of the evidence. Well, you might say that the highest historical probability might be equivalent in some sense to beyond a reasonable doubt, because I do think there's some history, historical facts like the crucifixion of Jesus. Sure. We Mm -hmm. know beyond a historical doubt. So I think that's one criteria, but that would be on the higher end. If I had to put numerical values to it and I hesitate, that'd be like an eight or nine. You know, proponents of the evidence, you might say it's like a six or seven, and then just as plausible as not as a five, you know, all the way down. You look at New Testament historians, it's amazing. They each come up with their own (laughs) historical grid. Mm -hmm. So I spent, I mean, probably days fine-tuning this and looking at it, because your conclusions will really stem from how careful your methodology is. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, if someone were to think, how could I even begin to look into this? The first place they'll probably go is, who are the apostles? How do we know who these guys even were? Um, Who are the 12 apostles? Well, that's a good question. We have lists in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that list all the apostles. And then some of them mentioned in John, not in the same kind of list as, say, we see in Mark chapter Mm 3. Um, and then we have the early church fathers who will reference and talk about these apostles. So there's very little debate about, say, Peter and about uh, James and John, kind of the three in the internet circle of Jesus. Mm-hmm. There's a little debate about Matthew and, say, Thomas and Bartholomew. 
even though there's some debate about whether Bartholomew is Nathaniel is referred to mm-hmm. in John. So a- as a whole, let me step back and say there's lists of the 12, but there's a few names that vary of which scholars are not certain. For example, take Bartholomew and Nathaniel. Is this the same person with two names? Or was Bartholomew originally part of the 12 and then died and then Nathaniel became part of the 12? Some of these que- these are somewhat open questions as far as one or two of them. Uh, so you could read John Meyer's text on the historical Jesus, and he goes into depth on the, on the disciples. But as a whole, we have confidence who the 12 are. Now, in my assessment, we looked at the 12, but then I added Peter and Paul mm-hmm. because they were, I'm sorry, I added Paul and James, a brother mm-hmm. of Jesus, because they're eyewitnesses of Jesus and because they're so formative in the early church. Mm-hmm. So, I could have expanded and looked at Mark. I could have looked at Luke. I mean, you could kind of keep going, but I thought I'm going to go with core figures, the 12, of course, with Matthias mm-hmm. instead of Judas, and then being careful whether Nathaniel and Bartholomew are the same, for example, and then add Paul and James and see what I can come up with, come up with the likelihood of their martyrdoms. Mm-hmm. So, in their context where you know, to, to name the name of Jesus was in many times to take your life into your hands. Um, how, how often do you think these disciples were actually um, persecuted and did they expect to be persecuted? This is a really important question. I'm glad you asked this because there's been some pushback, namely by a scholar from Notre Dame by the name of Candida Moss, very articulate, thoughtful writer. Uh, she pushes back in a book called The Myth of Persecution, arguing that Christians completely have a persecution complex. And I think if I remember the numbers right off the top of my head, she says within the first century, we can chronicle like six who died as martyrs. That's it. The rest is legend. Maybe that's into the second century, too. So she's gone over the top to just say, these things did not happen. Christians were not persecuted. So I went back and I read the entire New Testament for starters, asking the question, How commonly does Jesus or Paul or the biblical writers say that the followers should expect to be persecuted, and how often do we see it? And, Mikkel, it stunned me. Hmm. Number one, I was a little disappointed I didn't see it myself before. But this idea that Christians are signing up for a movement in which they expect to be persecuted Mm -hmm. is at the heart of the New Testament. Hmm. It's probably one of the more common themes that show up certainly in the top 10. Hmm. I mean, by the way, we are following John the Baptist, the forerunner, was beheaded. Jesus died a martyr's death. He said, pick up your cross and follow me. That's right. And we talk like, oh, my cross is, you know, my neighbor listens to loud music or something <laughs> like that. I mean, that's not what it means. He meant pick right. up your execution instrument and be willing to follow me to death. And you see in Matthew 10 where Jesus sends out his disciples, you know, among wolves, and he says they'll bring you before kings and before governors and Gentiles. I think, why does he mention that early in his ministry when they were going to minister to Jews? And the answer was because he was preparing them to go out beyond, and this was preparation for the kind of persecution they were expected to receive. Then I think if you just look in the writings of Tacitus, You look in the letter of uh, Trajan in the early 2nd century, the consistent theme is not, as some Christians say, that every single waking moment Christians were persecuted and they were rooted out completely by the Roman Empire. That's a little bit of an overstatement. Mm -hmm. Candida Moss 
understates it on the other side. They followed a martyrdom movement and were expected to do the same as Jesus had. That's what they signed up for. We're able to to separate out all the different reasons why um, Christians were persecuted, and then we're able to say that they were persecuted because of, say, their their testimony about about Jesus versus just kind of following Jesus, being part of this movement? Well, the early persecution is at the hands of the religious leaders, the Jewish authorities of that day. Mm-hmm. So, they were persecuting because they thought they were proclaiming a false gospel. Mm-hmm. I mean, so- sometimes Christians don't put themselves in the position of the Jews at that time to ask the question, if you are being oppressed by the Romans for proclaiming a false gospel, and the only way they could usher in the kingdom of God is by getting back to the Old Testament model of faithfulness, Mm -hmm. then of course they come around and start proclaiming what they thought was a different Messiah, they would try to root it out. Now that doesn't mean they should not have seen the truth and believed, but that's where they were coming from. It's not until you get in probably the 60s, although you see some hints in Paul uh, being persecuted by non-Jews because he was, you see early in Acts, he's upturning certain economic systems. You see hints of that. But it's not until Christianity was separated from Judaism and considered a distinct sect and didn't have the historical roots and relationship that the Jews did that you start to see the persecution really increasing. And the main reason from the Romans is because the Christians would not worship their gods. Mm -hmm. That's really the heart of it. So they didn't, in principle, have a problem that they worship Jesus as God. Fine. But part of their pagan belief was the military and the economy and their weather and their crops Mm. was based upon worshiping their gods. So, if people didn't, it put the entire empire in jeopardy. Christians come along and say, we're not going to worship your gods. So, they were pushed back and they were persecuted, which is why you see people like Justin Martyr trying to defend the behavior of Christians now Mm -hmm. into the second century, saying, we're not that different from you as you might suspect. Mm -hmm. And Justin Martyr, one of the earliest apologists or defenders of the Christian faith, yeah? That's right. Well, when we talk about this with our skeptical friends, sometimes people will say, look, a lot of people die for a lot of causes, a lot of people die for religious causes, for political causes. That doesn't make it true, right? It means that they think it's true, maybe, but that doesn't make it true. Um, what makes the, the martyrdom of the apostles different? Mikkel, I was staying in a bed and breakfast in Missouri, and I had breakfast with a nun happened to be staying at the same bed and breakfast while I was doing this research. Hmm. And she pushes back on me and goes, wait a minute, and asks the same question. Hmm. And I laughed. I thought, well, you know, of all people that value the same <laughs> martyrs, this sweet Catholic nun is like <laughs> me on this. And I said, this is a great question. Mm-hmm. Here's the only distinction to keep in mind. So, for example, if somebody walks in during this interview, puts a gun to my head, as morbid as this is, and I die, all you and people who potentially saw this would say is, wow, Sean really believed it. Mm-hmm. He actually believed this. He was sincere. But my death would provide zero evidence for the truth of Christianity. It would only show my level of belief, because I received this second, third, fourth, fifth hand from others. Well, that's true for any Muslim martyrs who died. And by the way, I don't really call them martyrs. It's only the popular terminology. I think Muslim terrorists and any terrorists are murderers, not martyrs. Mm -hmm. But they died thinking they were going to get a reward in the Mm -hmm. afterlife. Same with the Buddhist monks who lit themselves on fire. 
all this shows is they really believed in their cause. The apostles were eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus. The earliest records we have, and this also surprised me. I went back and I read all the New Testament documents. I read the church fathers. I looked at the creeds asking the question, what was at the heart of the earliest Christian proclamation? What's the kirgma? Mm -hmm. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7, we have the earliest creed about Christian beliefs, arguably dated within three to five years of the death of Jesus, where Paul says, I pass on to you of most importance what was passed on to me, that Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again on the third day. He appeared to Peter, he mentions James, he mentions the apostles, mentions the twelve and the five hundred. That's the earliest we count account we have of apostolic belief. It was based on seeing the risen Jesus. That's repeated in the writings of Paul. That's the early church in Acts. I challenge your listeners to read through Acts and just pay attention mm -hmm. to how every single speech focuses on the resurrection. And the apostles say, We saw the risen Jesus. We were there. We heard him. We touched him. We saw him. Mm -hmm. So their proclamation doesn't prove that Christianity is true, but it does show they're not liars. Mm -hmm. It does show they're not making this up. It does show that they sincerely believe that Jesus rose from the grave. So this doesn't get us all the way to Christianity. This doesn't get us all the way to the resurrection. We have to be clear. But it's one pinnacle that shows that these first eyewitnesses really believed it. They weren't making it up. This is not a conspiracy. They're not liars. They really believe this. They all suffered and were willing to die for it. There's no evidence any of them recanted, and I think we have good evidence that some of them actually died as martyrs. That is night and day difference than a so-called modern-day martyr who died for something he or she believed. Mm -hmm. So we can say that the disciples had real experiences that they believed, at least, were experiences of the risen Jesus. And the difference is they didn't die for something that somebody told them somewhere. They died for the idea that they personally saw Jesus. They were the only ones to know if they saw Jesus alive or not. Yeah, one of the remarkable things about New Testament studies, in particular resurrection studies, over, say, the past three or four decades, is that now it's a majority position to believe exactly what you said, mm -hmm. that the apostles had experiences they believed were of the risen Jesus. That is a majority view. I heard Gary Habermas talking about 1979 when he did his dissertation. He's like, only conservative evangelicals <laughs> believe that, nobody else. Now it's a mainstream New Testament position. The apostles had experiences they believe were of the risen Jesus. Now, a pushback would be, well, maybe it was some kind of grief experience. Maybe it was hallucinations. Okay, we can deal with that separately. Their willingness to die doesn't prove that that is wrong. There's other problems with those hypotheses and naturalistic explanations. But their willingness to die shows that they really believe they saw the risen Jesus, and they were willing to pay the ultimate price for that conviction. Now, what I think is amazing about this, Mikkel, is I, I'll mention my friend Jay Warner Wallace again. Mm -hmm. As a cold case detective for 25 years, he has never lost a case. And he said every single case that he's done, people commit crimes for one of three reasons, for greed, for lust, or for power. He goes, look at the apostles. It wasn't about money or greed. Jesus was like, sell everything. It wasn't about power. He said, be willing to die. And it certainly wasn't about sex. Jesus showed the highest respect for women. 
So all this line of argumentation shows is they were sincere and they wouldn't have a motivation to make it up. They really believed Jesus rose from the grave on the third day. That's right. That's right. Well, what were some of the challenges that you encountered just taking a look at the sources that you had to, to look through to nail down uh, what happened to the apostles? Yeah, there were actually quite a few challenges, more than I expected going into it. One, for example, is that a lot of the, the early church fathers confused some of the apostles. For instance, there's five or six people in the New Testament named James. Uh, Matthew and Matthias, those traditions get confused. Uh, even some of Judas, son of Alphaeus, gets mm. confused at times. Philip, the evangelist, gets confused with Philip, the apostle. So sometimes weeding through the names was difficult. The other challenge was that you see these early churches emerging, different parts of the Roman Empire and beyond. And if they could claim that they had an apostolic founding, it gave them a certain sense of authority and history within their community. So that's why we see at least five or six traditions of Bartholomew, totally contradictory about where he went, about how he died, about the nature of his ministry, emerging because different people are claiming the apostles. Now, that doesn't mean they're all false, but it made it more difficult to weed through which ones are historical and which ones are not. A third problem was you have probably starting in the middle of the second century through the fourth, fifth century and beyond, you have these apocryphal accounts emerging that are full of legend. Like in the, they're called the Acts of John, the Acts of Thomas, the Acts of Peter. They're often based around a historical core, but mm -hmm. they contain some legendary element. Like John commands these bed bugs outside his room to stay outside his room. Uh, <laughs> I believe Paul baptizes a lion. I mean, there's just certain mm -hmm. things. Simon Magus flies through the air in the Acts of Peter. You have these documents that kind of like some of the early uh, gospels of Jesus, not real gospels, that try to fill in the gaps of his childhood, mm -hmm. you find these later ones trying to fill in the gaps of where the apostles went and things they allegedly did. So, some of those contain a historical core that are helpful, and we know that because they're corroborated by additional external documents, but they're also filled with legend. So, the question becomes, when does history end, and when does legend begin? And that's a really, really tricky line. I'll give you, an, you know, we can come back and talk about those particulars, but that was one of the challenges. Yeah, wow, there are a lot of challenges that you faced. But our argument is that the apostles had real experiences that they believed were experiences of the risen Jesus. We know they claimed it at great risk to themselves. We know that they are willing to, to suffer for it. And in your work, you looked at evidence that some of them even really died for it. Go ahead and, and wrap that up for us to, to encapsulate what, what the challenges were. Sure. One of the challenges, again, is the early church would confuse, say, Matthew and Matthias, or the traditions of Philip the Evangelist and Philip the Apostle. Another challenge is that these different communities wanted apostolic founders, so they, let's say, maybe just willingly accepted stories that were maybe not grounded in history. Mm -hmm. The other challenge is we have these 2nd, 3rd, 4th century apocryphal accounts that are full of legend, but often based around historical core. How do we know it's history? How do we know it is fact? So I'll give an example of already where I've potentially changed my position since writing the academic book, Fate of the Apostles. Hmm. Uh, the first official report of the beheading of Paul 
although I think it's likely, even though it's not explicitly mentioned, comes in the, a book called The Acts of Paul, probably 180-190 AD. And it describes how when he's beheaded, this milk-type substance secretes from his neck. Well, my best guess was, looking at different writings, that this is kind of a, a metaphorical, figurative, exaggerated account to indicate that his death provided sustenance like milk does for a baby for the growth of the early church. And there's a lot of scholars that would agree with that. Well, then I had a medical doctor who's in our apologetics program at Biola. He emails me. He goes, hey, doc, check this out. There's a medical condition in which somebody will secrete a milk-type substance from the neck. Hmm. He said, I can't prove this happened to Paul, but don't be so quick to dismiss it as legend. I thought, man, that's a really interesting hmm. point. So some people have pushed back like that, and I discovered in my research that Yes, there's a lot of legend, but there might be some more historical core to some of these accounts that people are very quick to dismiss. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Hmm. So how do you define what a martyr is? Did you have to be pretty specific about that in your study? I did. I had to open up and I didn't realize there was such extensive literature on what a martyr is. So for example, is a martyr somebody who's willing to go through the process of death but survives? Like, say, a Daniel. Is he a martyr? What if somebody goes through the process but dies six months later and gets permanent wounds? Is that person a martyr? Like, this gets really sticky. Hmm. So, essentially, a martyr is somebody who's willing to die, and I would say does. I think you have to tie death to it for their belief and proclamation of the Christian faith. Now, that's what I mean by a Christian martyr. So, what gets sticky is that when you look, when you hear the popular arguments for martyrdom, you'll hear people say things like, well, they refuse to recant at the point of death. The apostles refused to recant their belief in Jesus. Therefore, they really believed it. Well, Mikkel, can I tell you, there are no early sources in which we have information where, say, Peter or Paul or Matthew are told, if you just stop proclaiming Jesus, we will not behead you or crucify you. Those kind of accounts don't exist. Mm -hmm. So, how then is somebody like James, who Josephus tells us was stoned to death, or put to death at least, uh, roughly in AD 62, is he a martyr? Well, I would argue that, one, the political and the religious factors overlap. So partly James was put to death for political reasons, 
but it's also religious Hmm. reasons, and we can't separate those. But furthermore, I'd say I think James qualifies as a martyr. Why? He was publicly proclaiming a message that was offensive to the Jews, an insult to the Gentiles about a martyred Savior who'd come back from the dead. Hmm. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem publicly proclaiming this. So if he's put to death by political and religious forces, you better believe that something tied to his public proclamation of the faith Mm -hmm. is related to why he put them to death. I think at least he gets a benefit out there and thus would qualify, at least broadly speaking, as a martyr. Mm -hmm. Well, not too dissimilar from Jesus, right? Jesus had religious charges and he had political charges that were uh, involved in his his execution. Yeah, I think that's that's a great point. And neither do we have... uh, uh, maybe you can correct me on this. We don't have any competing um, uh, data that says these disciples were nabbed in the middle of the night and, you know, killed, you know, um, just in a back alley somewhere, right? Well, here's where it gets a little sticky. We don't with Peter. So take, for example, Peter and Paul. We have multiple sources from within the living memory that Peter was taken to Rome and that he was killed as a martyr. You have this in John 21, you have it in Clement of Rome, you have it in the writings of Ignatius in through the second century. You have a consistent testimony when it comes to James, a brother of Jesus, and then James, the son of Zebedee, of course, is in Acts 12 too. So you have consistent testimony with these core apostles, but when you get to some of the later apostles, say third, fourth century documents, There are some claims of Matthew and Philip dying natural deaths. Now, it doesn't mean that they did. In the case of Philip, we have some accounts of him being crucified in Hierapolis, which probably were confused with Philip the son, uh, the evangelist in Acts 7. And then you have some accounts of him dying naturally. So, I don't know if they're I don't know how to assess between those which one is true. It's just hard to know, historically speaking. Now, when it comes to, say, Bartholomew, I found at least six or seven traditions. He was stabbed to death. He was crucified. He was beheaded. He was burned to death. He was thrown in a sack into the sea. Hmm. He was skinned alive. Hmm. And I think he, I forget the last one. I mean, either that was a really bad day. Mm Mm-hmm. Or there are competing accounts, and it's hard to know which one is true. Hmm. But what we don't have, we don't have any accounts of the apostles recanting their beliefs in the risen Jesus. This is very important, because again, Mm -hmm. all we're showing is that they sincerely believed it. We don't have to show they all died as martyrs. I don't think we can. But there's no record that they recanted. And you might be thinking, as skeptics have pushed back and said, well, this is an argument from silence. Well, yes, but it's an argument of silence I would say has some teeth because, think about it, skeptics and critics in the second, third century forward had every reason and every attempt to discredit Christianity. If there were even traditions of the apostles recanting their faith, they would have jumped on it. Also, you have debates in the second, third century emerging about what do we do with Christians who at the point of martyrdom abandon their faith. Can they be reconciled to the church? What if there was even a tradition about, say, Matthias abandoning his faith? Don't you think somebody would have brought this in? So the fact that we don't have any record of them recanting, to me, is at least interesting and telling that they're all willing to die as martyrs. Some of them did, 
And it's possible some of them died natural deaths. We just don't know for sure because those accounts are late. Mm -hmm. Well, let's run down the, the list of the apostles, and let's start by taking a look at some of the more, the more well-known ones. You mentioned Peter already. Um, any truth to the crucified upside down? How did you assess that one? That's a great question. I, here's another area where I changed my scholarship. When I looked at as many scholars that talk about how Peter died, it references in John 21, where Jesus says to him, you'll be taken where you do not want to go, your hands will be tied, you'll be dressed by another. And then in parentheses, the writer of John says, this is showing how he would die. And even Bart Ehrman has written in a text that I can cite, he says, this was to indicate Peter would die a martyr's death. If Jesus was the first shepherd, Peter's the second shepherd who will also lay down his life. Now, when I first read that, half the scholars roughly off the top of my head would say, well, his hands being separated is an indication to crucifixion. The other half would say, no, because he was, you know, the order doesn't match the order of crucifixion. So there's debate about that. Well, there's a book that came out last year, co-authored by Larry, uh, edited by Larry Hurtado. There's a chapter in there that says there's one thing we know for sure about crucifixion is that people were stripped naked for shame. Well, it says in John 21, Jesus says to Peter, somebody else will clothe you. So that means he probably wasn't being taken to be crucified. In fact, this author argues that he was burned in the time of Rome, you know, described by Tacitus uh, for the circus that Nero had. Now, I don't think we can prove that. For my project, it doesn't really matter how he died. What matters is we have a first century source, John 21, indicating Jesus would die as a martyr. Now, so I don't think, I think there's good evidence he wasn't crucified. The earliest record that he was crucified upside down shows up in a book called The Acts of Peter, end of the second century. Mm -hmm. And typically, you know this, why will Christians say that Jesus was crucified, or Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified the mm -hmm. same way as Jesus. Well, if you actually read the Acts of Peter, it's online, you can. That has nothing to do with it. Theolog it's making a theological point. The world was turned upside down. And when Peter is on the cross upside down, he can see the world upside correctly as it is, and his death will help to turn the world upside right, just as Jesus' death did. It's not till the third and fourth century that church historians take the Acts of Peter as if it's historical, and then say he was crucified upside down. So I think at best we can only say it's possible, because there is some precedent of people being crucified upside down. Martin Hengel records this in his book Crucifixion, but I don't think we're historically warranted to say it's likely or even probable. Hmm. Well, we talked about Paul already. Did you want to say anything else about Paul, this former skeptic, uh, enemy of the Christian faith? Um, dying for his, his belief that he saw Jesus alive after Jesus was crucified? Well, for Paul, we have the passage in 2 Timothy that's very interesting, which he says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. Mm -hmm. I fought the good fight. I ran the race. Well, here's what's interesting about that, is either Paul really wrote this, which you and I believe, because he knows he's been suffering his whole life, and his sufferings are bringing him to the point of death. Hence, he dies as a martyr. Or... This wasn't written, as a lot of critical scholars would argue, that this wasn't of the core, but they wrote it later, and they had to put those words on the lips of Peter because the tradition was so strong—I'm sorry, Paul, because the tradition was so strong that he died as a martyr. 
Either way, that text helps give hints that Paul was at the point, the apostle of suffering, told by Jesus he'd suffer his whole life, and his sufferings are coming to a point at the end of his death. We have another reference in Paul. That one helps us a little bit. I don't want to overstate it. But then in uh, Clement, 1 Clement chapter 5, there's a reference to the martyrdom of Paul and the martyrdom of Peter. And then we have multiple documents in the second century and no contradictory evidence that Paul, in fact, died as a martyr. Now, was he beheaded? The first explicit document shows up in the Acts of Peter, late second century. But we know John the Baptist was beheaded. We know James, son of Zebedee, was beheaded. We know he's a Roman citizen, and that was a common means of death. So I think we're very confident he died as a martyr. And I would say we're on at least solid ground. It's reasonable that he was beheaded. Now, you just mentioned one of the Jameses. You said there were two Jameses, right? Uh, Distinguish for us the two Jameses and then um, help us to, to understand what happened to them. So within the inner circle of Jesus, you have Peter and then the brothers James and John. Now, James is one of the only two apostles, Peter in, in John 21, and then James in Acts 12, too, that were told in the New Testament scriptures that they died as martyrs. So, a lot of the evidence for James, the son of Zebedee, comes from the reliability of the book of Acts, which mm-hmm. I think Craig Keener lies out in his volume on Acts very explicitly. And so does Darabach in his commentary on Acts, the historical case for uh the reliability of Acts, and there's no competing claims with that. And I think it just reads like an execution account. There's no flowery details that are added to it, which we see emerging later. So we're, on, I think, on very solid ground. James, the son of Zebedee, died as a martyr. Mm-hmm. Now, Gary Habermas says he wouldn't put James, the son of Zebedee, in his minimal facts because we only have one source. I would say fine. I understand that. But it still is strong, almost like the empty tomb, not in the minimal facts, but a very strong case can be made for it. Now, James, a brother of Jesus, we have a reference in Josephus that he was uh, he was actually killed during the reign of Ananus. So we have a late first century secular slash you know religious source, a Jewish source, indicating that James died. Now, there's debate about the reference to Jesus in what's called the Testimonium Flavianum, mm-hmm. where it refers to Jesus you know, resurrecting and doing miracles. But there's very little debate about this passage of Jesus because it's very incidental. And the death of James is only mentioned in passing because of larger political views that are taking place. And then you get in the second century, you have Christian sources, you have Gnostic sources, and Jewish sources, namely Josephus, referring to the martyrdom of James. So when you have that variety, and historically speaking early, I think we're on solid ground that he died as a martyr. Now, of course, the question is, and you can find extensive literature in this, yes, he was put to death, but does he qualify as a martyr? Because it says he was a breaker of the law. So we have to go back to Deuteronomy and ask, what would justify somebody dying the way James did for a breaker of the law? And I think an argument can be made that if you are leading a city astray, Hmm. you could have been killed in the way that he was. So can't prove that, but I think it's very plausible and reasonable that that's, mm-hmm. in fact, why he was put to death. Yeah. James, a former skeptic, and then is leading the church in Jerusalem. Quite quite a change. We mentioned, so these four guys that we mentioned, are there, there's good evidence in your view um, that they died as martyrs. Then we have a list of uh, a variety of other 
apostles. Uh, we talked about Bartholomew already, who, who could be Nathaniel. What about someone like Doubting Thomas, for example? We hear about him in, in Scripture. What happened to Doubting Thomas? So I, I think the four that you mentioned were on solid historical ground. And then I think at least more probable than not, you could make a case for Andrew and a case for Thomas. Now, Thomas is super interesting because every Eastern scholar I could find is absolutely convinced that Thomas went to India and died as a martyr. Mm -hmm. But they tend to do history a little differently than in the West. So, for example, the earliest source of Thomas going to India is in the Acts of Thomas, which is the end of the second century, early third century. It's full of most likely some legendary material, but one of the kings that he goes to visit in northern India, we have found a coin, King Gundafar, that shows he was a historical king in that place at that time. And some of the other names in the Acts of Thomas have matched up historically. Well, that doesn't prove that it's true, but that's very interesting. It says this wasn't an entirely invented fictional account. And for a, an apostle as prominent as Thomas was, there's no other accounts I could find that he went anywhere. There's tons for Andrew, tons for Matthias, but he only consistently went to India. We also know from uh, Eusebius that there's at least Christians in the middle second century in India. So we know Christianity got there early. And then you have this group of St. Thomas Christians alive today that have these traditions that they believe. Now, they don't have written history going back before like the 14-1500s, but they have poems, they have songs, they have stories, and deeply believe. In fact, I've seen some accounts where people believe they have the very family names going back to Thomas founding the church in India. Wow. Well, the real question is, is the Acts of Thomas independent of the St. Thomas Christians. Mm -hmm. This is a dissertation somebody needs to do. <laughs> I tend to think that it might be. Brian Litfin, a great church historian from Moody, thinks that it's not. But if you have one source, then at best I think Thomas is possible. If you have two independent sources, I think the case is very, very strong because they agree on Thomas coming to India and dying as a martyr. So, Thomas was, besides, he might be the kind of person who could pull it off. When they want to go to Judea, People are discouraging Jesus, and Thomas is like, let's go and die. I mean, you get this impression that he's all in once he understands it and is a risk taker. So I think, it, it, minimally speaking, an interesting case can be made for Thomas. Mm -hmm. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about Andrew real quick. Um, was Andrew crucified? Well, the earliest account for Andrew is in the Acts of Andrew, which is probably the middle second century. And again, it's full of legend. He's preaching from the cross for days. But then there's a second account for Andrew, probably in the third century, by Hippolytus. It might not have actually been written by Hippolytus. It's probably pseudo-Hippolytus. That sounds very different. That talks about him being nailed to a tree. So the Acts of Andrew and then the account by Hippolytus agree on his death by crucifixion, but they're worded very, very differently. So it seems like they're independent. Now, a second and third century document is not as strong as I would like, given only two, but I think there may be something to it. At least strikes me as more probable than not. I'll tell you what's interesting about Andrew is a modern-day journalist wrote a 500-page book only in Greek 
tying all the traditions of Andrew together. Hmm. He wasn't trying to say if they're true or false. He's trying to say, is there any merit to these traditions? He lines them all up and finds a gap in his chronology that he couldn't account for what happened to Thomas. And then he comes across this obscure tradition. I'm sorry, Andrew, this obscure tradition that Andrew went to Romania and it fit Hmm. right into his chronology and geographically the way he had laid the rest of them out. Interesting. Now, I don't know exactly what to do with that, but that's just interesting. (laughs) It tells me there might be more to some of these traditions Mm -hmm. than many people give them credit to, fully granting that many of them certainly are made up. Mm -hmm. Well, Sean, if our listeners would like to to check this out and look into this for themselves, um, where can they go? Well, Probably for all the details, the best place would be to go my book, The Fate of the Apostles, which is with the academic press Rutledge, Fate of the Apostles. It's an academic text, so it's not cheap. You could maybe get it from the library. I think their ebook is even cheaper, but it's an academic level resource book, 300, 350 pages. So The Fate of the Apostles with Rutledge would be the top academic place. My father and I also recently released his book, uh, Updated, Evidence Demands a Verdict. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we added was a chapter on the fate of the apostles. So I went through and kind of summed up my dissertation in a chapter in that book, giving all the sources, all the evidence, so people can track them down and do the work for themselves and trying to make that argument. So on a more popular level, Evidence that Demands a Verdict has a great chapter that might interest some of the listeners as well. That's great. Well, is there a personal takeaway that, that you had from doing the study on the fate of the apostles? Yeah, a couple of things. Number one, I would say we have to be careful to not overstate the evidence. We really do. I think this argument works, but I found well-meaning, uninformed people just parroting something they had heard mm-hmm. that ends up discrediting the Christian faith. And I've done this myself. Part of this was looking back at my life going, man, I got to be a lot more careful. So that's one thing we got to have integrity in our scholarship. Second, I think this is a powerful argument. I think the apostles really believed they'd seen the risen Jesus. They were all willing to suffer for this. There's no evidence any of them recanted. And we know that some of them died as martyrs. They weren't liars. This wasn't a conspiracy. They believed they had seen the risen Jesus and were willing to pay the ultimate price for it. So in my life, am I willing to pay a similar price for what I claim to believe? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, Sean, thank you so much for being here with us. This is a fascinating, fascinating topic. I hope our listeners will will check out your book, either the academic one or the new uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict book. When you think about the apostles being willing to, to suffer, and the evidence, some of them even died. It should give us pause to think we need to take a little more serious look at the resurrection. Because if the resurrection is true, then Christianity is true, and Jesus is worth living for, and Jesus is worth dying for. So thanks again for being here with us today, Sean. Thanks for having me, Mikkel. And thank you once again for being with us on The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. We hope you'll stay with us, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.